So one thing I love about New Life is being able to work in our end zone where we have a lot of fun and teach fitness classes out there and, and invite them to church. Hey, you should come. Hey, have you ever heard that, that the end zone is actually owned by a church? You know, we run it. You should come sometime. And oftentimes they say, oh, that's okay. I, I saw, right? I saw the sign. I was wondering about that. And they asked me, so what kind of church is New Life? Cool. Cool. Yeah, I would probably just say Cool. But I'm always wondering, like, yeah, how do I respond? How do I respond to that? Like, you would think someone who's worked here for 10 years would, like, have a good response. And I'm like, that's a good question. What kind of church is new life? And I'm, sometimes I'm like, I, that's when I wish we were just like Baptists. Be like, you know, we're a Baptist church, okay? Problem solved. We're Baptists, okay? People have a frame of reference for a Baptist church. They're like, yo, you know, I, I've been, I went to a Baptist youth group growing up. I, I understand that. But I can't say that because we're not Baptists. So I'm like, um... We're a non-denominational Christian church. And they're like, what does that mean? Aren't they all Christians? What are you talking about? Are you, oh, come on, I want, are you Methodist? Are you Presbyterian? Assemblies of God? Like, give me something I can really figure out. Like, what box are you guys? And it's like, oh, we're not a denominational Christian church. That's all I got for it. And if they really want to know, I kind of go in some of the history of kind of where we come from. In the Restoration Movement, it was started with some preacher from Presbyterian churches and Baptist churches and Methodist churches in the late 1700s, early 1800s that saw all the division within these different denominations. They said, this is silly. Like so many of the things that we are divided on are just human traditions. And they said, this, this division within the church does not reflect the prayer that Jesus prayed for his disciples in John chapter 17. Right? Jesus prayed the night before he would crucify that all his followers would be one. So the world would be one. So the world would know that Jesus was sent from God. And so they said, hey, can we just kind of go back to the things that we agree upon and unite upon those? And they said, sure. And so they, they kind of dropped the names of Presbyterians and dropped the Methodist name and dropped the Baptist name and they just called themselves Christian churches. And that's why we're called New Life Christian Church. And they said, what is one thing that we all agree upon? What, what could be home base for us? What could be North Star for us? And they thought about it and they said, well, I guess it's got to be the Bible. I guess, I guess we just got to get, just get back to the Bible, get back to the New Testament model of Christianity, and let's let the Bible be our guide. And so that's new life. We are a Bible-based church, and we let this be our guide. No matter what culture says, right, no matter what's popular around us in church culture or secular culture, the Bible will always be our guide. Now, why will the Bible always be our guide? Even when sometimes it's kind of hard to understand, right? Even when there are some stories in there that are hard to believe, that's what, we'll, that's what we want to get into today. Why, why do we believe that the Bible is God's word, that it's trustworthy, that it's reliable to build our lives upon, to build marriages upon, to, to raise our kids based upon the wisdom that's inside of it? That's what we want to wrestle with today. But before we get into those questions, let's pause. Let's go to our Heavenly Father and ask for Him to speak to us today. Let's, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, as we wrestle with some hard questions today, as we think about Your Word and, and why we can trust, I pray that You would speak to us. You would open up our hearts, open up our ears to hear what you want us to hear. Challenge us in the ways that we need to be challenged. Encourage us in the way that we need to be encouraged, God. We trust that you still speak. Pray that you would do that today. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Yeah, so, so why do we say, why do we believe 
that this is God's Word, that's an inspired Word, that it's trustworthy. Trustworthy enough that we would, you know, base our whole church and the guidance and where we're going as leaders based upon this ancient book. Because maybe sometimes you hear, well, you can't believe the Bible because of, well, science, right? Doesn't science contradict everything that we read in the Bible? Or maybe, you, maybe sometimes it's like you and you read the Bible and you're like, what's the deal with a talking, talking snake and a talking donkey? Hey, there's this story about a guy being swallowed by a fish and he lives in the belly of a fish for three days. Is that true? What the? Right? Or, or sometimes you hear people say, can you trust the Bible? I mean, hasn't it been like copied so many different times that the, the, the version that we have today is just not true to the original text? Hasn't it changed? Hasn't its meaning changed over time? I mean, these are, these are objections that I hear, sometimes questions that I have to wrestle with, doubts that I face. So let's wrestle with some of those questions. Why do we believe that this is God's Word and it's trustworthy to build our lives upon? Here's the first piece of evidence. Because of the supernatural fingerprints we see all throughout the Bible, all over this thing, cover to cover. Here, here's one example. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. First page of the Bible. First verse in this scripture. It says that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. No, no oftentimes we read that and we're like, of course, you know, it's what I learned in Bible school. And it's, it's actually kind of consistent with what I learned in science class. Right? You learn in science class, where did the universe come from? It came from the Big Bang. So, of course, you know, of course, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I get it. But when that was being written, when Moses was penning those words, that wasn't too popular. Right? Ancient philosophers like Aristotle, they said the universe has always existed. There was no beginning. Matter has always existed. Right? Because what do we learn in science class about matter? That matter is neither created nor destroyed. It can change substance, but it just doesn't come out of nothing. But Moses had the audacity to say, no, there was a time where there was no time, space, or matter. There was nothing other than God. Then, boom, in an instance, he brought it into existence. And that was kind of foolish for a lot of people. Until the early 19, uh, 20th century, about 1920s, this guy named Edwin Hubble started looking through telescopes, looking into space. And you know what he sees? He sees that the universe is expanding. And so all of a sudden he starts winding back the clock. He says that the universe is expanding, that at one point it didn't even exist. But then in a moment, in a singularity, time, space, and matter came into existence. Exactly what Moses said. Well, how did Moses know that? I mean, Moses didn't have a telescope to observe that the universe was expanding. No, he had God who told him this is how it unfolded. And it's amazing that when you read the creation accounts in the book of Genesis, it unfolds in a very consistent way that science said it would have happened, right? With electrons producing the first light, God says, let there be light. And then in the geological record, cosmological record, we see the development of the universe that we have today. And so no, science doesn't contradict what we see in scripture. Good science always aligns with good theology. That's just one way we see God's supernatural fingerprints on the Bible. Next way I see it is just the amazing consistency, the amazing consistency we see all throughout the Bible telling one story. Because this book is actually not one book. It's actually a collection of books, 66 different books written by over 40 different authors, three different languages, written in three different continents over a span of about 1,500 years. And yet they all tell one consistent story. Several years ago, I had the opportunity to, to co-write a book with Brett and Dale Spalding. 
And it was my job at the end to kind of bring it all together, to make all the final edits, to make sure it told one consistent story. And that was really hard. Right? We had to have a lot of meetings. Okay, what are you writing? Okay, does that contradict what he's writing? Okay, what about this? How do they complement one another? It was a lot of work. These authors, the 40 plus different authors, most of them didn't know each other, right? They lived in different times, different places. And yet, when you put it all together, it's like there's one author behind it, right? John's not like, hey, hey, Moses, can you put something in there about that looks like Jesus? So when I talk about Jesus and how he's the Passover lamb, it kind of really looks like that. Or, or, hey, can you tell that story about Abraham sacrificing his one and only son, but then just in the nick of time, God's going to provide a, not a lamb, but a ram. And then 2,000 years later, Jesus becomes that sacrificial lamb, crucified in that exact spot. It's like, man, that's amazing. One, com- one consistent story throughout all the, those ages, 1,500 years, and all those authors. And, and, and actually what we see in the archaeological record shows that, yeah, even hard-to-believe stories in the Bible probably happened. Right? It's what we see in the archaeological evidence. One story, for instance, one story is found in 2 Kings chapter 18 and 19. It's a story that's like scratches my head. Like, that's amazing. It's a story about this king in Judah named King Hezekiah. The Bible says King Hezekiah loved God. He prayed to God. He worshiped God. But then the king of Assyria, King Sennacherib, came into Israel and the other king before him had already conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. And now Sennacherib's on his way down to Jerusalem. And the Bible says that Sennacherib conquers all of these fortified cities in Judah. That's what the Bible says. And then the Bible says that, that Sennacherib surrounds Jerusalem, and he's got Hezekiah in Jerusalem. He's all surrounded, and Hezekiah's like, what do I do? Well, interestingly enough, archaeologists have found three prisms, these big stones with the six sides on them. They unearthed them in Nineveh, and it's Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, giving his account of the story. And he gives the same account. He says, you know, I I went into Judea. I conquered 46, he says, 46 cities in Judea. And then I had Hezekiah surrounded. He says, I had Hezekiah surrounded like a caged bird. That's Sennacherib's words. I had Hezekiah surrounded like a caged bird in Jerusalem. And he says, I I laid siege works. We were getting ready to conquer the city. And then the story just ends. It's like, what happened, Sennacherib? Why'd the story end? Well, because the Bible tells us how the story ends. And it's with Hezekiah getting on his knees and saying, God, we're in a tough spot. Would you deliver us? And the angel of the Lord comes down and destroys the whole Assyrian army. And Sennacherib retreats back home defeated. He's not going to include that part of the detail, right? That part of the story. But that's consistent with what we see in history in the archaeological evidence. There are 25, more than 25,000 archaeological discoveries that correspond with the stories that we see in the Bible, right? And that's because the Bible is very detailed. It's not like this. It's not like just, hey, once upon a time in a land far, far away, right? The Bible is saying, here's how it happened in this time period. You can look it up. This, this is how Luke says Jesus' ministry began. This is Luke chapter 3. He says, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip Tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Licinius, Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. 
It's like no one in the first century could say, when did that happen, Luke? Are you sure you know when that happened? I, that's why I, I hate reading Luke and like Acts like out loud with people. Actually, we were actually doing that with our church planters this week. We were reading the book of Acts and it's like, who wants to read? It's like, I don't. I don't know how to pronounce half of these names. <laughs> but, but everybody, all scholars, right? There's a guy, Vince Antonucci. He's actually going to be here to preach next week. He was a guy who was going to the university at Buffalo. Good friend, family friend of ours. He was going to the university at Buffalo. He, he thought the Bible was just a bunch of myths and fairy tales. And so he said, if the Bible is true, if it's, if, or it's not true, he said, I can prove it wrong. And so he started opening up. He's like, this isn't read like I thought it would. I thought it was going to be like in a land far, far away, you know, big Bessie with an ox and all this stuff. He's like, I could prove this wrong. And so he did the evidence. He, he just examined the evidence. He found, wow, no, actually, it all checks out. It all checks out. And that's one thing I love about the, the, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is that we are able to see the different personalities of these authors. So Luke's a doctor, right? So he's going to use big words, right? He's going to use very, he's going to investigate and get all the details right. But then the Holy Spirit's like, hey, if, if you want to add some details that really don't add any value to the story, go ahead. Like the book of Mark. I love the book of Mark when Jesus, the night before he's crucified, he, is he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, and Mark adds this account that when Jesus is arrested, there is some unnamed young man who goes streaking through the night. Okay, it's a, it's a weird, weird. But apparently there is some young man who knows Jesus is going to the garden, so he throws on his tunic, right? Doesn't think, okay, I might, I might get caught tonight. So he goes to the garden, he's got his tunic on, and somehow during the chaos, some guard grabs his tunic and he just says, I'm out of here, boom, and just streaks through Jerusalem, becomes Jerusalem's first streaker. Like, Mark, that has no bearing on the story of Jesus. Like, Jesus then gets crucified. Why, why do you include that detail? Because that's just what happened. And a lot of people think that was probably Mark saying, I was there, and I was ashamed, and I fled because I was scared. It's like, why all these details? All these details about the, the, the disciples, and they always have egg on their face. They're like, hey, Jesus, hey, you know those Samaritans that didn't let us stay in their town last night? how about we call down fire from heaven to destroy them? Wouldn't that be good, Jesus? And she's like, where'd you get that idea from? No, it wouldn't be good. Or, you know, in the book of Acts, Peter, right, this early church leader, it takes him three dreams from God to say it's okay to eat with people who aren't Jewish, right? He's like, okay, Peter was kind of racist. But the Bible is honest about it. Like these heroes of the faith. It's like, why include all these details except it's just how it happened, they're not trying to cover anything up. They're just being honest. Another reason why I see God's fingerprints all over this book is through fulfilled prophecies. Through fulfilled prophecies, very specific prophecies, like the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel who predicts the rise and the fall of the, the Persian Empire and the Greek Empire and the Roman Empire. It's led a lot of secular critics to read and say that couldn't have been written by Daniel. It had, that had to have been a later addition to the book because that's exactly how it happened. Or he was inspired by God who told him that this is how it's going to unfold. Or the 300 prophecies that Jesus came to fulfill. Now, as a skeptic, I look at some of these prophecies. I'm like, well, I mean, could that really be like a fulfilled prophecy? Because Jesus read the Old Testament and, and he read that the Messiah was going to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. So him riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, is that a fulfilled prophecy or Jesus just knowing that's what he had to ride on? But then there are a lot of prophecies about Jesus that he had no control over. 
right? Like the book of Micah saying that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Jesus couldn't control where he's going to be born. You know, the, 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 the prophet Isaiah saying, hey, Jesus is going to be born, the Messiah is going to be born of a virgin. Jesus has no control over that. Or, or the fact that he was going to be betrayed by 30 pieces of silver. Or the fact that the, the guards at his crucifixion would cast lots for his clothing. He had no control over that. Or, or like David saying, hey, God, you will not allow your Holy One to see decay. And Jesus from that says, hey, the Messiah, he's going to die, and he's going to be buried, and he's going to rise again. He says that's what happened. He, Jesus even predicted his own death, burial, and resurrection. But he knew that that's what the Old Testament said, all these prophecies that Jesus came to fulfill. Now, sometimes I think, but Sean, these prophecies, how do we know that Christians didn't like go back into the Old Testament and maybe put them in there? Just, just put them in there so it looked like Jesus fulfilled them. Well, that, that argument could hold water until 1947. Until 1947, when a young Bedouin shepherd was kind of kicking around the desert of Qumran by the Dead Sea, and he's throwing rocks, and he throws rocks into a cave, and then he hears this crashing noise. He hears that his rock has destroyed an ancient piece of pottery, and he goes in and he finds all these ancient scrolls. Eventually, these scrolls get in the hands of scholars that are now called the Dead Sea Scrolls. And they are ancient manuscripts. And in this cache of manuscripts, we found every Old Testament book except for Esther and Nehemiah. And we have the whole scroll of Isaiah. And and when those books have been translated, do you know what what the book of Isaiah says? It's the exact translation of the Isaiah that we have today. It's not that it was changed. Why? Because when the scribes, when the Old Testament, when the ancient scribes of Israel, when they wrote down these copies of copies of copies. When they were doing this, they knew they were inscribing God's Word, and so they didn't just count the words that they were writing down. They counted each letter. It was letter by letter, making sure they had the exact letters, the exact words that would be handed down from generation to generation. That's why Jesus, he had so much confidence in the Old Testament. He said this, Matthew 5, 18, he says, For I tell you, you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter, or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. You know, all, uh, this evidence is what led Solomon P. Chase, a Supreme Court Justice of the United States, say this about the Bible. He says, There came a time in my life when I doubted the divinity of Scriptures, and I resolved as a lawyer and a judge that I would try the Bible as I would anything in the courtroom, taking evidence for it and against it, says it was a long, serious, and profound study, and using the same principles of evidence in this religious matter as I would in any secular matters. He says, I have come to the decision that the Bible is the supernatural book, that it has come from God, and that the only safety for the human race is to follow its teaching. So you knew it just looking at the evidence. I think if you follow the evidence where it's lead, you will conclude the same thing. But here's another piece of evidence. It's supernatural endorsement. This is another reason why I believe the Bible is God's Word, because Jesus said it was God's Word, because Jesus did. Now, that might sound like circular reasoning. How can you prove the Bible by someone who's in the Bible? But there's plenty of evidence even outside the Bible that Jesus existed, that he had a group of followers, these Jewish people, who all of a sudden, even though they were Jewish and it was blasphemy to worship a man, started worshiping him. So extra-biblical accounts attest to that. 
So I just say, okay, if, if Jesus is who he says he was, that history attests to who he says he was, that he, he did die, that he did rise from the dead, I'm going to go with what he said about the Bible. And he believed the Old Testament was Scripture. That's why whenever he gets into arguments with the religious leaders, he always appeals to them on the basis of Scripture. He says, hey, okay, what do we believe? Okay, the Bible, the Old Testament, it's God's Word, right, guys? Yes, okay. So when he has a debate with the religious leaders about who the Messiah was going to be, he says, is the Messiah going to be a man or is he going to be God? He appeals to Scripture. Jesus appeals to Scripture saying this, Matthew 22, verse 43. He asks them, how is it then that David, inspired by the Spirit, calls him Lord? So who does Jesus say inspired David to write the book of Psalms? It's the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. He is saying David wasn't just writing this himself. It wasn't his inspiration. It was the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, so Jesus, he constantly talked about the Old Testament, talked about Jonah, talked about Noah and the flood, talked about Sodom and Gomorrah and the destruction of the city. It's like, yeah, he believed the Old Testament, all the crazy prickly parts as well. But what about the New Testament? Did, did, did Jesus believe that the New Testament was God's inspired word? Well, I think he predicted that it would be. Matthew 24, 35, he says that heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. He says, yeah, there's coming a day where there will no be heaven and earth as we know it today, but my words will not pass away. Why? Not because he wrote anything down. Not because he had a website. Not because he had Twitter or TikTok or a blog or a podcast that would always forever be found on the internet. But because he knew his disciples would write his words down to be passed down from generation to generation so that we could read it today. That's why the night before he was crucified, he told his disciples, get ready, the Holy Spirit's going to come and he's going to help you write scripture. This is John chapter 16, verse 12. He says, I still have many things to tell you, but you cannot bear them now. But when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own, but he will speak whatever he hears, and he will declare to you what is yet to come. And, and listening to Jesus that night was Peter and Matthew and John, these guys that the Holy Spirit would come, and just as Jesus has spoken to them God's word, so the Holy Spirit would then inspire them to write scripture, like Peter in Second Peter. He says, hey guys, we aren't writing down cleverly invented stories. This is Second Peter chapter 1. He says, we are eyewitnesses. He says, we are on the mountain of transfiguration, which Jesus was transfigured, and, and we heard his voice echo from heaven. <clears throat> and then Peter just actually quotes Matthew, Mark, and Luke, saying, that's what we heard. God say, this is my son. And then a few verses later, Peter says this, verse 20. He says, above all, know this. No scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation, because no prophecy ever came by the will of man, Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. See, sometimes people are like, yeah, the, the authors of the New Testament, they didn't know they were writing Scripture. Oh, they knew. They knew Peter knew. He knew Paul was writing Scripture. That's why a few, ver few pages later in 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter says this about Paul's writings. He says, there are some things that are hard to understand in them. Okay, ever been to a Bible study when you're reading the book of Romans and you're like, I have no idea what he just said. Right? You get that, you get that Romans, you're like, all of a sudden your friend's like, you know, you know the, what about predestination? What about election? You know, 
Calvinism versus Arminianism. I've gone down that rabbit trail a long time. It's like, I don't understand it. If you don't understand it, don't worry. Peter didn't either. Okay, you're in good company. Peter continues on saying this. The untaught and unstable will twist them to their own destruction as they do with the rest of Scripture. Yeah, as they do with the rest of Scripture. He's saying what Paul is writing, the letters that we're reading, church. They're God's Word. They're Scripture. And that's why Paul in 1 Timothy 15, he says this to Timothy. He says, for Scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. Right, Timothy, do not muzzle out an ox treading out the grain. What is that? That's the book of Deuteronomy. That's Moses. That's the Old Testament. And then he says this, and the worker is worthy of his wages. The worker is worthy of his wages. Where's that found? That's the book of Luke. That's Luke chapter 10, verse 7. Right? And a lot of people are like, oh, well, you know, the, the, we can't trust the Gospels because they were written later. Uh, well, Peter, Paul was quoting them, and he, he died in about 67 AD. So actually, they were written kind of early, within the lifetime of the eyewitnesses themselves. And the evidence is overwhelming. There's no mention of the destruction of Jerusalem all throughout the New Testament. In fact, the book of Hebrews is talking about how the priests are continually making sacrifices like it's still happening in that day. In the book of Acts, Paul's still alive at the end of the book. It's like, why doesn't Luke mention Paul's death in 67 AD? That's a big thing. He's beheaded. He's martyred for his faith. Why not mention that? Because it hasn't happened yet. And, and Luke is part one of Acts. So Luke was written before Acts. And so, no, sometimes we hear like, you can't trust the Bible because the gospel accounts were written late. No. They were written early within the lifetime of the disciples themselves. And the fact is, you can get rid of all the New Testament documents and we could still piece together almost word for word the entire New Testament just with the words of what early Christians wrote to one another. Like, Polycarp. There's a guy named Polycarp who was a disciple of John. So John learned the ways, learned the gospel from Jesus. G John passed it on to Polycarp. And Polycarp becomes the bishop, a church leader in the town of Smyrna in Turkey. He actually goes down in, in history as a, one of the first martyrs of the early church. He was given multiple, multiple, multiple times if he would recount his faith. Asked multiple times, would you recant your faith? He said, for 86 years, I've served him, and he has done me no wrong. How could I blaspheme my king today? And he went to his death, believing that this was true. But in letters that he wrote to the early churches, we see that the Bible he was reading is the same Bible we read today. So in, in 120 AD, he wrote a, a, a letter to the, book, uh, to the city of Philippi. And it reads like a college freshman term paper. Okay, like I don't remember if you are a freshman in college. You're like, how am I supposed to write a 10-page paper? How do I get a 10-page? You're like, what do you do? Just quotations, right? It's just block quote after block quote after block quote. No original thought. That was Polycarp's letter to the church in Philippi. This, this is just one part of the letter. He says, I have greatly rejoiced with you in our Lord Jesus Christ, who for our sins suffered even unto death. 1 Corinthians 15 whom God raised from the dead, having loosed the bands of the grave. That's Acts chapter 2. In whom, though now you see him not, you believe, and believing rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. That's 1 Peter chapter 1. Into which joy many desire to enter. Matthew chapter 13. Knowing that by grace you are saved, not of works, but by the will of God through Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 2. And he alludes or quotes 
27 of the New Testament books. There are 27 books in the New Testament. He loses, quotes all of them. Right? And so the argument, they, oh, you can't trust the Bible because it wasn't created until 395. It's like, no. The early church knew what was Scripture. And the same documents that they were reading that was being circulated all throughout the Mediterranean and the world are the same documents that we have today. A million, more than a million direct quotes are found in these early church leaders. And that's how scholars can piece back the Bible, the New Testament, almost word for word. Now, the, the third reason, the third reason why I trust the Bible is because of the superfluous manuscript evidence. Superfluous manuscript evidence. All of the evidence through the manuscripts. See, unlike all other ancient documents, we have all these manuscripts to compare to figure out, okay, is the New Testament consistent with what was originally penned? Like if you're a you know, history buff, maybe you know Homer's Iliad. Right? Homer's Iliad has got about 643 copies, manuscripts of it, and the earliest manuscript right, dates 500 years after the original was written by Homer. You know, Plato, the works of Plato, we got seven. We have seven manuscripts of Plato. We have nearly 6,000 Greek manuscripts and 20,000 other manuscripts in other ancient languages. And, and the, the earliest date back to the early 2nd century, about 120 A.D., John Rhineland's fragment, a, a part of the book of John. And I'll admit, right, when we look at these manuscripts, we see that the New Testament isn't 100% accurate to every letter to every word. It's not. It's 99.5% accurate. But it's 100% accurate to the original message of the Bible. You see, in the first century, when Christians started reading these documents, they said, this is the hope of the world. We need to start copying these over and over again. And so they employed scribes to copy and copy and copy and copy and copy. And in that process of mass producing all of these documents, there were some errors, right? A letter got mixed up here. A word got mixed up here. But your Bible is honest about that, okay? The Bible is not trying to hide anything. So if you would, just open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Here's one of these textual variants, one of these errors. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 7 says, But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, and in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you. And then maybe you see a little footnote there. In my Bible, there's a footnote A. It says, in some manuscripts, it says, and in your love for us. See that you also excel in this grace of giving. So what's, what's that footnote about? Well, that footnote says that in some manuscripts, at some point there was a scribe that maybe made a, a note in the, the margin. You know, is it supposed to say in the love for us? Because I thought, you know, I heard someone say it should go in the love for us, so they made a note about it, and then eventually someone, another scribe sees it and puts it in. And so, yeah, there are some textual variants. But notice how nothing in the verse changes, right? Nothing that we believe about God, about Jesus, about the Holy Spirit, about salvation changes with any of the errors, right? There are, there are people who say, you know, Bart Ehrman, he's a professor at the University of North Carolina. He says, you can't trust the Bible. You can't trust the Bible because there are more textual variants than there are words of Scripture. And I've not done the math. I, I, it's probably true. But that's because there's 20,000 manuscripts, and if each have a few errors like that, there's going to be more than words in the New Testament. But the fact of the matter is, is that we have, because we have 20,000 manuscripts that scholars are able to overlap with one another, they're able to get to the original meaning. They're able to get to the original wording. 
right? They're able to get back to it 99.5% of the time. And the 0.5 that's off, like, was it this or was it that? Doesn't affect the actual meaning of the text at all. So when you hear people say, you know, you can't trust the Bible because it's changed over time, that's just not true. Right? Not only do we have the evidence from the early church fathers and what they quoted from Scripture, we have the 20,000 manuscripts to compare and contrast as well. The fact of the matter is, though, that, that people don't throw the Bible away. They don't discredit the Bible because it contradicts itself, even though that's sometimes popular to say. No, they complement one another. It's one author giving their perspective just like you would see at a crime scene, at a car accident. Someone's going to say, I saw it this way. Someone's going to add this detail, and they complement one another. The Bible doesn't contradict itself. The fact of the matter is people, they discredit the Bible not because it contradicts itself, but because it contradicts them. That's the truth of the matter. Right? Because the Bible is filled with a lot of challenging teachings, things that are really hard to obey. That's why Mark Twain, he once said, it's not the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that bothers me. He says it's the parts that I do. Right? It's the teaching to forgive those who have hurt you. Right? The, 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 Jesus' command to pray for those who persecute you. The, the commands to honor God in your sexuality. To, to put God first in your finances. To feed and care for the poor, for the marginalized. That's why Gandhi, he once said this. He says, you Christians look after a document containing enough dynamite to blow up all civilization. He says, it will turn the world upside down, bringing peace to a battle-torn planet but you treat it as nothing more than a piece of literature. Yeah, Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher, put it this way. He says, the matter is quite simple. The Bible is very easy to understand, but we, are a bunch of, we Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers, he says. We pretend to be unable to understand it because we know very well that the minute we understand, we are obli- obliged to act accordingly. That's why we don't trust the Bible we don't want to believe it's true because we know it's going to ask us to do some hard things it's not always convenient may even be unpopular in our day and age but it's god's word we are called to obey it and and god didn't give us his word to ruin our fun okay i know it's like oh man this just seems really hard and i don't want to do it it's like no god has given us his word to flourish because he's designed our world and he knows what we need to do in order to have healthy relationships, in order to experience the abundant life that Jesus died in order to give us. So the question is, are we going to trust it? Are we going to read it? And are we going to apply it to our lives? You know, a lot of times I hear people say, Sean, you know, I hear Brett talking about how being a, a follower of Jesus, being a disciple, it means hearing God's voice and following. Hearing God's voice and following. I mean, I, I, just, I just wish God would speak to me. I, I, wish, I, I wish I could hear God's voice. Here you go. Okay, here you go. I don't, it's like, what else do you want? Like, this is God's word. He still speaks through it. The question is, are we reading to it? Are we reading it? Are we listening to him? Are we allowing the Holy Spirit to convict us and to guide it, to guide us to obey it? See, the truth of the matter is, you get yourself acquainted to God's voice in here, and it'll help you hear God's voice everywhere everywhere. So that, that, that's my challenge. And maybe, maybe today you're still like, I, 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 don't, I still got questions, right? I still have questions. I'm still trying to figure out whether I believe that this is true. Well, could I encourage you to maybe do some investigation of yourself? 
Re- read the book, Why I Trust the Bible by William Mounts or Cold Case Christianity by J. Warner Wallace. Or, or talk to my friend Tom Hamburger, who's oftentimes in the back. See, Tom was invited by his friend Mac to come to church. Several years ago, about seven years ago, Tom showed up. He didn't believe it. He wasn't a Christian. He was just exploring different faith systems, but all of a sudden he heard the Bible preached, and he said, huh, if that was true, that would radically change my life. And so he dug in, and he did the investigation, and he concluded that is God's Word, and now he has given his life to helping more people wrestle with those exact questions. And so he would be a great resource to talk to if you ever want to talk to someone about that. But what is God calling you to do when it comes to his word? Would you read it? Would you get, to, would you get involved in a, a Bible study group? Would you read God's word on your own into a Bible study plan? God will speak if you listen, because this is his word. It's his word as, a, as, our, as our church. We will always allow it to guide us. You can have confidence that our leaders know that this is home base for us. We'll be home base for you, for your life, for the way you raise your kids, for the way you treat your spouse. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you that you have given us your word, that you do to continue to speak to us today. God, I know it's, it's easy sometimes to look at your word and just look at it like a textbook. God, just read it as a book of history, but we know that it's living and active, that it's sharper than any double-edged sword, that it divides even soul and spirit, that it can convict us, that when we read it, that you can still speak to us today. And so that's what we pray. That's what we ask for, that as we dig into your scriptures this week, that we would hear your voice, that we could follow you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.